I'm Mark Gagan and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. It's great to have Clive Washbourne back on the show. The episode I recorded with him two years ago has been the most downloaded of any so far, so it's obviously going to be good for business to do a follow-up. But it's more than that. Clive is one of those people who's famous in the market. He's someone who people tell stories about, so you've heard about him even if you haven't met him. So when he founded his Navium MGA, it was a no-brainer to ask him on the show. I had no idea what to expect. What happened was Clive being an absolute force of nature, and one of the most revealing and fun interviews I've ever been a party to. We did that one, under a lockdown, over a video call. This time we're face-to-face in Navium's office on Lime Street in the heart of the London market. It makes a huge difference to be physically in the room with someone like Clive. He really comes alive. What follows is another tour de force, which reveals what is driving this remarkable marine MGA and what has pushed it to produce an amazing $360 million in gross written premium in its third year. We talk about the market, Clive's business philosophy, and where Navium is heading and how it fits in with Pinewalk and the wider and now restructured Fidelis operation. But because this is Clive, we get into something that we rarely talk about elsewhere. Listening back, we grapple with the true art of underwriting and how to play yourself into a strong market position. We learn how you can be a really technical underwriter without being the least bit boring and how you need to be ultra-selective and teach yourself to maximise opportunities whenever they arrive. We also get an idea of how you can turn down large amounts of underpriced business but at the same time make the brokers keep coming back to see you. After two interviews, I've got my own theory. I think people come to see Clive because they really enjoy his company. I think he's someone you could talk to about anything and he would make it an interesting conversation and an honest and unflinching exchange of views. I get the feeling Clive makes all the people he talks to feel understood and special. Here Clive even reveals a historical interest in the Battle of Waterloo and burnishes his prog rock credentials by bursting straight into song. We both had a lot of fun and I learned a huge amount and so will you. Enjoy the podcast. Clive, welcome back to The Voice of Insurance. Mark, that reminds me of Carnival 9 by Emerson, Lake and Palmer, which is Welcome back, my friends, to the show that never ends. Come inside, come inside, blah, blah, blah. So great to be back. I can tell you that last year, I don't really like doing press and interviews, and Rinku Patel really pushed me into doing it, and I really, really enjoyed doing it with you. It was great fun. I really enjoyed it because it was just the beginning of the lockdowns, and it was a bit miserable, and... I was sitting in the spare bedroom like most people were. I think you were in the office here. We were in the office and we've just had our second birthday party and we've come up to our new office, which is a source of great pride to us. And, you know, for that first eight months, because we cut off at the end of 21, we sort of managed to get up to about 120 million. Dollars, pounds? Dollars, gross income. And last year we've ticked up to 365 million. And this year we're doing okay. It's been absolutely fantastic. We've gone from three, four people, where it was Rinku and Liv, and they're now three members of staff, and we're now at 18, of which we're mightily proud 12 are female employees, of which all but one are graduates. And you can see their influence, because if you are clever enough to walk around our meeting rooms, you'll see they're named after female pirates. <laughs> so, Because we thought we just don't want all these dull names, like names of streets in London. So we've gone for female pirates. So, you know, I think we were very lucky starting when we did during lockdown. Um, we've had every member of staff, when possible, in the office. And that's how you build a sort of culture and a strategic direction. 
And I think that's a nice segue. Can I just get on to one of my bet noirs? WFH, WTF is that <laughs> all about? And what do I mean? I honestly think a lot of the CEOs of our fellow businesses in the city have really decked down the community of the city. I mean, they have provided restaurants and little shops for all the years we've worked here, and they've shut down one after another. And now this week, M&S has gone. So look, I know these big cuddly CEOs of big corporates think it's nice that people can work from home. I really do challenge whether one, it's good for mental health, two, whether it really does generate great business effort. Because can I be honest, when I'm working from home, I'll find any excuse to have a cup of coffee, to look down the river, to look at people jogging past my window and the boats on the river. And I honestly, truthfully challenge myself, I am not as productive. Now, that doesn't mean that that's the case for everyone. But if I can just say something, I said, guys, get your crew back. It's better for all. It's better for the community. Yes, means more pollution from the travel coming in. So that is the biggest challenge we have. But then that's up to us yeah. to fix the pollution, you know, make sure we come in on electric trains and everything else, right? Because each of these businesses are people's lives, people's families, people's mortgages. I find it really, really upsetting to see the carnage around here. And, you know, the CEOs have it within their grasp to actually push people back to work in the city. And I think that would be good for all. But I'm sure you're going to have someone say, well, I really don't agree with him. Is that because you've got the luxury of having a small business? And oh, yeah. sort of, you know, 18 is important because suddenly, even when you go down to 17, that's actually a percentage of your business not there. Know, that's a really good question. It has, once again, having a, a small business just told me that I actually prefer running a small business because you know everyone and everyone's really vested in the business. Is that just a natural human thing? Yes, there are I think natural, it is. Even within really large businesses, probably the most successful ones are split down into cells of no more than about 20 people. That's absolutely right. And I thought, on balance, Beasley got that correct. It's just my preference for small companies where you all know each other. And of course, that for us is going to be a challenge. So... In terms of an update, you've more than trebled in size. You say you're doing well this year. Does that mean you're going to continue to grow at the same sort of rate? Or is it now you can start to say, well, actually, I'll stick at 360 and just do it even better? Again, that's a very good question. I think you should always, as an insurance underwriter, certainly in the London market, maximise when things are at a rate where you can make a margin which is significant for your capital base. And at the moment, I don't see very many of the marine classes not delivering really top quartile returns on capital. So we will keep pushing as far as we can. We don't underwrite in what generically people believe MGAs just work as a cash register looking to make commissions. We certainly don't behave like that. My DNA from my other companies is certainly making good returns on capital for our backers, and in our cases, Fidelis and their capital. And we still turn down an enormous amount of business. I think, you know, with our success, there's been some jealousy and some really sort of falsehoods about what we're doing. But I can tell you that we've turned down over $3 billion worth of income in 100% terms. You know, if you took an average 10 or an average 20%, that would double our size. Why? Because we are still very selective about the business that we go after. And we have great support from Fidelis in terms of the line size that we can write. So if we like something, we will be fairly aggressive with the line we put down and maximise it. 
that's part of the Fidelis deal. Yeah, yeah has absolutely. Happened. I mean, that's a good segue for Fidelis. And look, you've got award ceremonies and you're on the red carpet and they go up and they make their speech and they always thank mum and dad and, you know, the guy from their local news agents. I do have one person to thank and that is Richard Brindle and his exec team. And he's got a great exec team. His bravery to support us and the lines he allows us to put down has allowed us to actually really develop a fabulous business. And thank you to Richard. Their ethos is very similar to us, very aggressive, big lines, very selective. Something's not right, you don't write it. They've been an amazing supporter of ours. And I know a lot of people really expected the two volcanoes to blow up, but in terms of <laughs> having disagreements, because, you know, Richard's is very strong-willed, and I have my own particular modus operandi, but we get on terribly well. And I don't think there's a company in the world that would have backed us in the way he has. I think it's worked out. I'm looking at Rinku, wondering whether I'm allowed to say this. Before Brindle to make a £1 million loan to get a $350 million business in exchange, I would say is one of the greatest investments ever made in the city. And if you think of some of those billion dollar takeovers of companies, and you know, 15, 20 times EBITAs only to blow up in three years, I think it's genius. But I would say the that. The only other comparable investment that on the market would be Brian Marsh backing David Howden, probably. And then when he finally sold out at some point, you know, it's, it's a huge return. Now, there's a very interesting person. I was actually in the Howden box at the Thousand Guineas on Sunday. David Howden came. My, what a gust of wind. He's on one at the moment. He's a very clever, brave man. Um, I like him very much. I must much. get him back on the show again. Yes, he, he is get a huge back, yeah. volcano of energy as well. Yeah, a bit like, yes. like yourselves. Maybe you should get you both on the show, actually. I tell you what, you, you really want David Howden on with Richard Brindle. Now, that would be an interesting... This could be quite sparky. I, pres- <laughs> I just presume it would be sparky. No, I think they get on very well. Well, that's often the case, actually, I think. So it's kindred spirits. So you're saying the market's pretty good. I listened to the podcast that we did two years ago. Back then, you see the cargo was pretty good. Yes. Liabilities awaiting a major correction. Hull was a bit flaky, but there were some good bits. War was good. So three out of four were in growth mode. Is it four out of four now? No, I think it's still how I described it then is exactly now. I think cargo is fabulous. The war, you know, we can come on to that well, obviously, later yeah, on. We, that's something that's happened since we last spoke. Yeah, it is. The hull still is flaky. I mean, in very simple terms, if you look at some of the big fleets, a handy-sized bulk is somewhere between thirty and 40,000 tonnes. And this is part of this $3 billion we've turned down. Fleets paying $65,000, $70,000 per vessel. I had a Greek ship owner at lunch last week saying to me, Clive, I don't know how anyone makes any money in the insurance under 100000 You don't get much change out of anything, do you? I mean, is that hull and machinery? Yes, it is. Yeah, and if, I well, you I'll give you an example. If you're down at $65,000, a boat, and it's a Greek family-owned firm, 10 ships, 600000 take the brokerage off, that doesn't even cover one generator damage. Now, generator is the high-revolution pieces of machinery. You probably have two or three on a ship. They're likely to break down, and you're not even getting enough money for that, let alone the TLO content of the, you know, the massive calamity you know, going onto the rocks or a fire in the engine room. I just don't understand how people are making money from that. I understand how it's driven there, because a lot of it is driven from the P&I club markets, where they have a different driver, and that is to give product Across the, well, they don't have to make a profit. They have to stay solvent, but they have to make a profit. Absolutely. And I don't blame them because they don't actually have to make a return on capital. What they have to do is try and make the product as cost-effective for the shipper. So we're competing against that 
with our desire to actually make a return on capital. So that makes it harder. Because to- of them diversifying into Hull over yeah, the last 20 yeah, years. Absolutely. One or two have come and gone because actually what they find out, or they will, at $65,000, $70,000 a boat, is when the freight market comes off, they will find that price is inadequate. But that's not for me to tell them that, but they'll find out in due time. Sorry to interrupt in mid-flow, but this is just a reminder that you could be advertising right here, right now, and getting your message directly into the ear of key decision makers in the insurance industry. And you'll be doing it while they're absolutely in listening mode. The Voice of Insurance has just run through 300,000 downloads. If each of those had had a 60-second ad in them, that would make 83 hours of talking to the industry for a fraction of the cost of alternative media. The podcast is the medium of the future, and so is audio advertising. Contact me on mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com, and I'll do everything I can to get you started. So you said we might talk about the war market afterwards. We might as well talk about it now since we've mentioned it. So what has happened? I mean, how have you managed to navigate through that? Well, obviously, it's apocalyptic for the world, what went on in Ukraine and Russia. Oil and gas needs to come out of Russia and foodstuffs out of Ukraine. They come on ships and we insure those ships. At the time the dislocation came, we were very, very lucky because we had, as a business, very little exposure there. There's nothing on the books yet. Very little. We've negotiated with some of the owners. We had some exposure. We've got out of it. But again, because Fidelis are used to making very big, brave calls when there's a dislocation, and that's always how we have behaved, and that is where there's dislocation, there is always a chance to make a good profit. So after it all settled down and everyone had done their numbers, Richard Brindle said, right, off you go. Here's your aggregate. Here's your lines. Here's your port aggregations. And with that, we grabbed a very big market share lead position. I think we've already had about 800 inquiries since the beginning of the year on voyage breaches in there. Many other competitors in the market would be worrying about what was going to happen to their treaty renewal. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, some facilities and with things that were bundled together, all being unbundled. Absolutely. Because you had that direct line of command, you didn't have to worry absolutely. about it. Absolutely. So that was an advantage. I can't claim sort of any, that was good timing. I think our business was very solidly put together without that. Now, I won't give you the exact figures, but if I told you the end of one, I said to Ollie, my number two, Ollie Clark, the amount of war income we're getting is really disappointing because I think it's a big earner of profit for the Lloyds Syndicate and the London market. Basically, because with all the cancellations, in theory, you have a bank, you can then give a notice and re-rate and you get the money back. Yeah. We only had $5 million. That's very, very disappointing. If I told you now we're doing more than that per month, it might give you an idea of the scale of the business. So we are very happy with that position to be in. What about liabilities? You said that was set for a correction. Has it had its correction? It, I mean, in all honesty, Oliver Clark writes that book of business. We don't write the international group, but we pick our way through the rest. And I think we've got an average rate rise of 15%, which for an occurrence book of business, you do need an inflationary rise. But for the obvious reasons, you might be paying a claim in five or six years' time. I think it's probably the only class of business at the moment playing the right inverted commas, inflationary rise. If we get three to five, we're lucky. But with the cost of steel, etc., that's probably diminishing our profitability. But the competition is huge. And therefore, you can look at things and say, this is our price. But at the end of the day, we want to write some business. So sometimes you have to say, well, okay, that's probably not quite enough. 
but will still give us enough return on capital. If you're happy with the risk management, yeah. you don't have to worry yeah. about the rate as yeah. much if you don't think they're ever going to crash it. Absolutely. So the liabilities, yeah, no, we're really happy with that. And the ports and terms as well is great. Cargo is unbelievable. I've personally never, ever seen figures like it from Henry Surprise, Warner's surprising team. why would cargo be so good for so long because it is the ultimate commodity isn't it because it, it's, it's a, a big commodity and of course you know Fidelis has been great at giving us some that cat aggregates those came down slightly because of the change in treaties but you know something we found that an amazingly good discipline to go risk by risk and go right what have we got in this particular county in the US and looking at how much income we were generating, what the rate online, and actually we've actually thrown some business out, which is probably all right, because we're trying to really maximise our NatCat effort. So it forces you to really re-underwrite yeah, your portfolio all the time. We do like dislocation, and I know Richard does as well, that when there's dislocation, there's opportunity. What has always fascinated me is as soon as there is a particular calamity, the amount of people saying we're not writing that anymore, we're not writing fire on fish boats, or whatever. To me, that's music to my ears because the <laughs> moment someone starts excluding something or moving away, leaves what's left the ability to go, thank you very much, sir. And that's Excellent. what we intend to do. I think there's certainly an element of that for particularly large publicly run insurance companies. Yes. The CEO wants to never have to mention that in a subsequent quarter. Why do I have to spend the whole of this quarter talking about some class of business that has made a tiny amount of money over the last 30 years? And you know, all the analysts have been asking me about it. And frankly, I didn't even know we did it until the big loss came in. And then the sort of the order comes down, well, we don't do that anymore. But it's those that are, you know, really quick on their feet. Look at Berkshire. They've suddenly massively upped their aggregates. It was very interesting. In, in, After in this Florida. big uh, festival weekend of Buffett Festa, yeah. we finally, because that was one of my head scratches over the renewals, was sort of, what's the Jeep been up to? I always want to know. Of course, he comes out with the biggest smile you've ever seen. And that's all I need to know is that if Majit's got the biggest smile you've ever seen in 20 years, then it's probably a good market. Yeah. Look, he's smart. The company's smart. You have to doff your hat to them. They move quickly and they allocate big exposure to yep. where they think they can make a decent return on capital. And, you know, they've gone in there. Last year, Fidelis took down their aggregate, I think, by about a third in Florida. That turned out to be very smart indeed. Because, I mean, the hurricane season's just about to start at some point. And if there's a $200 billion hurricane this year, you might seem incredibly smart. I mean, why not? I'm hoping that all these scientists are right. It looks like the, the, any storm track this year is likely to go up the East Coast rather than into the Gulf. We rather like that. As a maritime man, yes. I'm sure you'd yeah. like to avoid things in yeah. the, uh, sitting in the Gulf of Mexico. And obviously after what happened in it, we were offered loads of binders for American small craft yachts and stuff. But frankly, if you can't drive it away when the They've storm got comes, to go, they? no. There's no time to get your yacht out of its No, park, there isn't. I mean, we do play with yachts, but only on the super yachts where there's 365-day crew, so anything happens, they can be moved. The stuff that's static, I just think it's a license to lose money. It'll uh, just blow yeah, away. Yeah. yeah. Even if you get out of the water, it doesn't really matter. No. It just gets blown into someone's front garden, so a couple of hundred yards away, doesn't it? It makes for great pictures, doesn't it? You mentioned about being able to wield a pretty big stick in the marketplace, which is a good way of getting people's attention and solving the broker's problem when the client comes with a problem, you're able to actually solve it and rather than just offering them a not very meaningful line. So I was going back to when we spoke two years ago, you wanted to build a lead function. Do you think you succeeded in that? Because obviously oh, to be a leader, you need to have all the facilities and, and your good claims department, all the infrastructure around that. Do you think you've built it? Are you leading as much of the business as you'd like to? That's a really good question. In simple terms, probably not. If I look back to my Beasley days on the whole side, for example, I think we led about 85% of what we're doing. 
I think overall across all of our product lines here, we're about circa 20%. I would like to lead more because that gives you better insight to what's going on. I think you said on. you'd rather have about half. Yeah, I would love to get there. Do you think you'll get there? I don't know, but one of the reasons for that is very simple. Some of our competitors think that we want to disrupt everything. We don't. And therefore, it is actually suited us in many of our areas, like Cargo, just to come onto the slip, not to lead, but just to participate, because we actually feel we're getting adequate rate. So why try and undercut that for a lead position? There's no point. So we've played ourselves into the market, we think, very cleverly, and long may that last. I would, over time, like to build up our lead position, because in my mind, we're a stall in the marketplace selling claims. And the more you can influence that, the speed and efficiency of that, I think the better for you and better for the client. And over the years, I used to think from our lead position and being able to jump in quickly, look at something and make a quick decision, even though it might be grey about quantum, I think over a period of time saved us probably about 10% of ULR. That's a very meaningful number. I mean, if you've got 50% capital, you can work out the return on capital. That might affect. So in time, absolutely would like to lead more. We're right in the middle of restructuring our claims department. And I don't want to come out with flannel, but I really do want it to be the best in the market because actually, at the end of the day, that's what the client's buying off you, speed of claims process. And I actually think in the end, it makes that business a little bit more sticky if they think, oh, I love the way Navium handled that claim. It's a virtuous circle. Yes, certainly. When it doesn't work so well, some of these claims, they're just dragging on forever. And it's probably more on the liability side, because this wreck removal was uh, the last 10 years. It's thinking there's a huge amount of indecision, it would have appeared, you know, that it probably really needed someone to actually take it by the scruff of the neck and, and start dictating a bit. Absolutely. But look, a little secret about the London market. When you have an area that is incredibly profitable, I wonder whether we all look at the wording as much as we should. And it's only when it goes bang that people go, blinking heck. Can I just say that we do look at our wordings really closely? Use those sort of things as an example of why we need to look at them closely. Because when it goes bang, you ought to know whether what you're covering and how you're covering it. Absolutely. Well, certainly as a broker, inertia is useful because why do you want to talk about things that are silent? Because you're just opening a can of worms and it's going to be a nightmare. All you know is as a broker, you just want to keep a lid on all that stuff because you want to get the business place and go home. You do. (laughs) And let's be honest, I'm not saying many, but there are a few brokers that probably don't even know what they're selling to their client. Don't put me in that camp. I would be knowingly trying to change the subject because it's a really difficult (laughs) problem. It's not going to be solved this afternoon. No, actually, (laughs) absolutely. That's why, you know, when you've been on some business for two or three years and you just want to change something, the brokers never like it because they have to go back and explain why it was there, why it's out. And that's rather boring, isn't it, when you want to get down the upgrades. When there's a long chain of people you need to convince that that was a good idea and why it needed to happen, it's very hard and it does add a lot of delay. And I suppose, Clive, you know when to push for these things when you can, and then other times you just have to fold your arms like everyone else. Do you think you were a good broker? No, I wasn't. (laughs) I think I'm a slightly better journalist. but um, you're a very good journalist. No, I wasn't a good broker. I couldn't keep a straight face. And if an underwriter asked me a difficult question, I would actually go red. If it was a one where I'd really rather not answer, and they knew straight away. I think they were just winding me up. But you were talking about, you know, when you grow quickly in the marketplace, you get this jealousy, because obviously, yeah. presumably, there's people being knocked off business. It's like, what the hell's, oh, wow, Clive Washman's coming and taking me off this thing, or that this business has gone away, that it's been really profitable for many, many years, or whatever. As a journalist, I can tell you very much that we're the sounding board for all that. The next thing you know is that they're phoning us up saying, 
you'd better watch out for these Navium lot. They're a bunch of cowboys. And the same with broking, of course. I've learned over the years to take that with a pinch of salt and probably note that either it could be true, but at the same time, I know why they're saying that. They just would say that, wouldn't they? Yes. And it's also a sign that you're obviously making waves in the market, and that could be very positive as well. The reaction is not surprising. You know, 360 million has come out of the market. That's a reasonable amount of money. I mean, it's not necessarily a zero-sum game. I no, know that 360 has been taken away from someone, but some of it would never have existed if you hadn't been there. No, absolutely. And we have generated a lot of money from abroad, which with placements that weren't here. So it's not just cannibalising what's already here. So in terms of when you had your blank piece of paper and you have this idea of building something, have you built all of it? It sounds like you're still building on the claim side and this building your lead function side. But in terms of the classes of business you're in, you haven't suddenly woken up and said, you know what, we've got to get into this other class over here. To be utterly open, we we have thought about other classes. Obviously, the difficulty for us is that with Fidelis being 100% of our backing, they're already in a variety of classes and it doesn't make sense to have probably us in them as well. something really new to it. Absolutely. The other thing is we thought, I won't say what, but Oliver and I went through thinking and having a consultant to think about a totally different product area. But at the end of the day, we suddenly realised that we were already stretched with management time and actually to bed this company in, we need to stick to our knitting to start with. And it would have been easy to be totally distracted. And I think we would have really been cross with ourselves if we'd let the concentration of this go and the performance of what we've already got, because the grass is always greener. And if you look at many insurers, when they're getting trouble or stressed in certain areas, the grass is always greener. And you think, for heaven's sake, use your brain. If that's stressed here, that's going to be stressed over there. But it's thinking we're going to bring our great ego and our capital to a new piece of business and we're going to be successful. The naivety is breathtaking. So we are sticking to our knitting. Would we like to be in other product lines in time? Yes. Because obviously in your career, you've supervised books that are obviously more adjacent to to Marina or different parts of Marina. Absolutely. So you you wouldn't be going into classes that you didn't know about. I would really steer clear of that. (laughs) I mean, I, I think insurance and certainly maritime insurance is really difficult in its own right. I'll be honest with you, Ollie and I, even now, even with us rocking, have sleepless nights. You know, I will go home and think, is that right? Is this right? And even the last few weeks, I, I won't say what, well, we've just decided to exit a little segment in the market. there be no losses at all. We just sat there and thought, that's the lines we're writing. That's the income we're doing. It just felt a little bit like going to Monte Carlo, putting it all on red. So we've just come out of it. So what I'm saying is, I think being scared by the business is really important because the moment you think you've got it beat and the moment you're cocky and there's hubris, that's when you're in for a kick in. And that's why when we're asked to make comments to various trade presses, we tend not to because I think the moment you stand up saying, aren't we great, is the moment you get whopped on the left-hand side. A haymaker comes out going, I didn't see that coming. So be thoughtful. We're constantly test ourselves. Are we doing things right? Are we in the right sectors? Are we writing the right lines? Obviously, we are very tight on our aggregations and exposures and cat that and still find some of the pricing in some of the cat exposed areas. For example, marine construction. It's almost like someone's forgotten that it's a quake area. But there <laughs> we go. 
until the quake comes, and then they know it's a quake. And then that's definitely static, isn't it? it? Yes, sitting there. Absolutely. You know, there aren't that many shipyards in the world, are there? And so, yeah, and if they're in a cat area, you can't do anything about it, can you? As we thought, one good thing in the construction area was with the war. Ollie and I said about a week after it happened, I said, do you just watch? There'll be a whole new order book of military ships in Europe. And that's exactly is what has happened. Yeah. It's a good time for shipbuilding. Yeah, do, do you do builder's risk? Yeah, we do a lot of builder's risk. You know, the rating's a bit formulaic, but the fact is you can risk manage it. The JH143, which is the standard yard so appraisal. So you, know, you know where it is. Yeah, you know where it is and you know whether they're any good. And then we had something surprising last year. Back came from a major yard, who not going to mention... They still allowed their smokers to smoke up while in the construction areas. <laughs> anyway, so back comes a picture of this new straw hut where they go to, to have their cigarettes. I mean, I have to say, I did giggle, thinking, goodness me. I suppose in the builder's risk, it sort of has all the things that fire underwriters would hate. It's just welding everywhere yeah, and just sparks flying everywhere. And yeah, absolutely. And that fire watch is absolutely really important. And you see the biggest construction loss at Ever was obviously a fire loss in, in North Europe, but it can go wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, since we last spoke, Fidelis has gone through its own transformation yeah. into an, an MGU. I suppose you're the original Fidelis MGU, aren't yeah. you? Yeah, well, Pinewalk and uh, now well, your colleagues. has seven MGAs. I'm looking at Rinku. Does it affect you in no, any way, not really? It's business as usual, which is great. Fidelis balance sheet is your paper and it always has been. Absolutely. And, and that's who you deal so with. So the structure's not changed, the reporting hasn't changed, the risk appetite hasn't changed. I think the only thing that's changed is I think Rinku Patel's probably going slowly mad with the pressure. Well, actually, when certainly Richard Brindle was using you as the poster child for why he decided he wanted to start Fidelis MGU and to separate the underwriting with the balance sheet. Are you a good poster child? Are you still happy? That's I the think I'm amazingly happy. Look, CEOs of PLCs can't say this, but I can. I used to sit on the main board at Beasley, and when 80% of the papers are about regulation, it was interesting understanding that, interesting about capital, risk appetite. It was a really great education, but actually your business is risk-taking, and we spend all our time about the risk-taking. The regulation is looked after by Rinku and the crew, and that means that all it is is we talk about risk-taking. Personally, I love it. Risk-taking is really interesting. Dealing with the Irish regulator, less so. <laughs> so that's why Rinku looks so unhappy. By the way, he's smiling in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> so it hasn't really made any difference? No. I mean, what have you learned so far about building this business? It just reinforces the most important thing and the hardest thing. And the key to success is who you employ. And it is really difficult to find really good people because... The better quality of the individual, the better the result. If you want a poor result, have a poor employee, have an average result, an average employee, etc. I never forget the words Andrew Beasley said to me. He said, Clive, always try and employ people brighter than you, and then the business will flourish. And do you know something? I've tried to do it. Even some of our teams, you say, why don't you like that individual? Blah, blah, blah. And you just know, because they're going to be a challenge. And that is exactly what I want is then to employ someone that's going to challenge them. Not to take their job, but it keeps the whole atmosphere buzzing with very bright people. I think we've assembled an amazing team. I have to keep saying this, and I will, that actually having a very high percentage of women makes it such a grown-up atmosphere here and collegiate. You know, just watching how the crew circulate and talk is absolutely great. And we've got some great, great women employees. So, at least you're clever. You're not one of these people who said, uh, you know, being told to go and find people who are cleverer than you, saying, well, I can't find anyone cleverer than me. <laughs> the whole lot are. 
Because when we first asked you two years ago why you'd set up Navi and we said uh, partly to do with ego. Oh, it definitely was ego. Because, you know, I wasn't in a good place. And as I said before, it was my friend Chris Elliott, who used to be CEO of Tizers, is a great man. He gave me a kick up the proverbial and said, look, do you want to end your career like this? Or do you actually finally want to be courageous and give it a go? It's the greatest thing I've ever done. And actually, it's not the ego. It's just for me, it's, it's a mental health of getting up and having a routine again and enjoying watching the youngsters because they're all youngsters. You know, I'll be 63 this year. And I feel like a granddad and seeing them all buzz around. My goodness me. We have this open plan office. So everyone listens to everything. Everyone is learning all the time. It makes it very vibrant. And all I can think is I wished I had this level of interaction and people looking after me when I first started, because you really can jump your knowledge base up very quickly and become very useful for the company. Whereas if you're sitting, I'll come back to my Beck Noir, WFH, how do you educate someone? How do you observe and help someone become as good as they can be. You have to really institutionalise it. Then you have to actually diarise it and make it happen and say, this is my half hour where I'm going to talk to these younger people and actually give them the benefit of my experience. Obviously, in an open plan office, it doesn't just happen organically because you can gather around and hear Clive's war stories, can't you? Or you may have to listen to them whether you like it or not. Oh, no, it's not the war stories. It's my eyes opening, listening to them chatting about (laughs) what they've done the previous evening. (laughs) (laughs) So if you're only 18... You haven't felt you had to sort of write some sort of constitution of Navium or anything in terms of, you know, because I suppose when you get to a thousand people, suddenly you do have to no, some kind of reference to, work, you don't know, you? I'm going to be controversial. Isn't it all drivel? <laughs> if it's we want to be the, the highest performing, wonderful insurance company. I mean, who reads this? I mean, you've got to live it. You've got to behave like it is the most important thing. You're quite right. Probably when you've got a thousand people, people should think, yes, yes. You do have to start codifying things, you, you, which is a bit boring, I find. But in but. some ways, if you've got really bright people, intuitively know what you're trying to do, They'll and that is out. be very good at what we do in what we sell, which is claims. Yep. And one thing I wanted to pick up from a couple of years ago, you said your brain was just starting to warm up. Yeah. yeah is it warmed up? Is it, is it fried now and have you burnt out? It's so warm, you could bake a sourdough <laughs> bread on it at the moment. Has it changed you in any other way? And also, obviously, you start with a plan and then no battle plan survives the first shots of warfare. So what else has changed? And has your own idea of what the end goal might be for you changed since you started? I love that analogy. I can't Actually, remember Alex who, Hill um, is one who of our... said it, yeah. I'll, I'll have to look up. I'll put it in the notes when I find who said that quote. Alex Hill is one of our war underwriters. He went to Belgium last week to do the Battle of Waterloo tour which was six hours. I think the two accountants with him were lagging at the end. And why it's interesting is I've got one of these coffee tables, which is totally glass, and I'm building the Battle of Waterloo in it. So I've got the French and the Polish Lancers and the Scots grazing. And I'm dying to get a Frenchman to come up for a drink and I could go, Waterloo, mate. Remember there's the farm. <laughs> is there a farm? Yeah, Hougamont. Hougamont. 1,500 British troops kept... Eight to 9,000 French at bay, which is unbelievable. Sorry, I've gone off at a tangent there. No, but your own plan. Look. Or look, your idea of where you'll end up uh, with No idea at all. It is the most exciting thing in the world, what's happened. We all enjoy it. I've actually just, in terms of what I've learned, is absolutely, definitely, definitely restating. Get good people and let them get on with it. Micromanaging is no good because 
you've got to let people make their own decisions and talented people don't want someone saying what are you doing what are you doing it's rubbish we have enough communication and oversight that the risk taking we're in control of but you're allowing intelligent sentient human beings to make good decisions and feel they're contributing to the common cause and you can see what they're doing yeah. in real time these yeah. days can't you yeah what's the downside of that is that we run a very lean team here and we can't take passengers so i think one of the saddest things from my point of view is that we've had to let one or two people go but this is the thing that happens in a small team it's really it obvious yeah. if someone's not performing yeah. to the same yeah. level and it doesn't fit i always sell it to the team in this way and that is you can't take passengers. You really can't. And it might at times seem quite tough, but we need this business to be operating at optimum level all the time. And you do have to make quick, decisive decisions. I think you actually find in those situations, I've been in that sort of small work environment a long time, it's fast growth. Those people, you bump into them two or three weeks later, or even two or three months later, and they're much happier. And then your whole team's much happier. And everyone's forgotten all about it. It was a big trauma at the time and actually totally forgotten about it. I won't say, but that resonates very much with someone who's just gone who said they're so much happier they don't feel under pressure anymore, which is fabulous, isn't it? And actually, you know, their life's better. Yep. Something else that's been continuing, I suppose, been continuing for all our insurance careers is that brokers have generally been getting slightly bigger over time. Again, we've had another wave of, particularly within the London wholesale market, is it a good thing or a bad thing? I mean, it could be slightly good because some of them got more resources now. I mean, so even though you don't have tiddly brokers with only a couple of accounts, now you've got brokers with sizable accounts and can invest in some of the infrastructure and technology and the other stuff. Look, all markets are efficient. And I think if there is consolidation to go on, I don't see it as a threat. I think the only threat to the market are those brokers, and a lot are doing it now, that own MGAs. Because what happens is they get the earning coming into the MGA, they earn going out of the MGA, and therefore anyone writing that business has had quite a size lump taken out of it if they're going to write that business. Of course, we're not in that market, but for the market as a whole, I think that is a difficult thing. In the end, though, if you believe markets are efficient, if they're taking too much, it will show, and they'll lose money, and then they'll lose capital. You don't feel like you're being bullied by these ever bigger brokers? No, I, I, I don't. Look, there's a balance. Then you've got the pen, haven't you? So We've got the pen. (laughs) I really do believe they're our partners. And at the end of the day, it is a balancing act because I think the really more cerebral understand if they take too much, we can go to the retail market ourselves with technology. That wouldn't suit anyone. I love the fact we've got 44 brokers who run around the world. I'll be honest with you, they've been fabulous for us. The deal flow is terrific. Our only gripe really is that money is a bit slow coming and of course with interest rates blipping up it's not surprising yes it's quite nice to see sort of even instant access savings accounts are paying actual interest rates so i think all i'd say to that 44 (laughs) is pay us our premium please (laughs) poor old brokers you see we we used to make money on the exchange rates poor old brokers did you see gallagher's profit (laughs) (laughs) i suppose from a breaking point of view in the end of course if you squeeze the market so hard that none of it's making money and everyone pulls out of a class, that's not serving your client at all. You've got to understand that the underwriter probably has to make a return on capital just like anyone else. Absolutely. You know, as an observation sitting on the sideline, those brokers that are highly leveraged with interest rates going up are actually going to want to sell our rises. So that's a plus for us. Might not be a plus for the client.
Absolutely. Well, I think I've run through most of the questions. It's probably a good time to sort of summarise. So you're still growing. market's still good. Will you be growing at the same sort of rates or not? It's difficult to tell. It's always difficult to tell. You know, as with ship owners, you say to them, how do you think the freight market is? You know, they always say the same thing. Um, this is terrible. Got, oh, <laughs> well, there's that or I don't have a glass ball. I don't know well, how the It's very volatile, isn't it? It is very volatile. Just as a quick snap, I think we've got at least two years of a reasonably strong market. It might be greater than that. I hope there is not anyone listening to this podcast who's a non-marine underwriter thinking that marine business is where to come buzz off and leave us alone. We've got enough capacity. And there we go. And there's capacity that brokers are not walking away without filling their orders. It is all good. And let's be clear, I like our broking partners. We look after each other. I think we do a good job for the clients. And Brokers do a thankless task. You think of you know some of the time lags and chasing Filipino ferry owners to pay up. Must wear them out. It is quite tiring. Well, Clive, more power to your elbow. We'll book in for another couple of years' time, or if not before, because it was great. Very invigorating. And I'm going to have to go and listen to some Emerson, Lake and Palmer. Carnival number nine. Absolutely fabulous. Sounds great. Welcome back, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much, Clive. And yes, come on the show soon. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost-effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance podcast is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs> <laughs>